Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Louis Anderson died last month. He was 68. Louis was a great stand-up comic. He did it for over 30 years. As an actor, he had iconic parts in movies like Coming to America and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He also had his own cartoon show in the 90s, Life with Louie. He hosted Family Feud for a while. He had a lot of jobs in show business. I got to talk to Louie in 2017. At the time, he'd been starring in the FX show Baskets. It was a pretty different part for Louie. The show starred Zach Galifianakis as Chip Baskets, a sort of mean, sad rodeo clown who lived in Bakersfield. Louie played his mom, Christine Baskets. Louis was funny in the part because, well, for one thing, because Louis Anderson was a brilliant comic actor. But it wasn't a campy performance. There was no winking at the camera. When he played Christine, he did so with deep love and empathy. The role earned Louis both an Emmy and a Critics' Choice Award. Before we get into our conversation, let's listen to a scene from the show's second season. Christine, played by Louis, just traveled to a jail in Camarillo, California, in order to bail her son out. Here, they're meeting in the visitor's room, and Christine's patience is wearing thin. Oh, I can't believe it. When Dale told me... Dale told you. I thought, oh my God, my son? I don't even see my chippy in there. I just see a jailbird. Mom, I, I, I don't want you worrying about me anymore, okay? It's not worth it for you. What did you do to get in here? Mom, it was just, it was trespassing and, 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 and mischief, I think. Mischief? Mischief, yeah, general mischief. Mischief! Mischief! Were you chasing a mouse around? <sighs> Jeff, is it because I sent your French wife away? No, that's not it. You know, Chip, I provide a house for you. I give you food. I give you money. I brought. I bought. I bought you tennis shoes. I paid for your clown college. I don't know what to tell you, Mom. I'm. I'm a millennial. What does that even mean? <laughs> <laughs> Louis Anderson, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Great to be here. <laughs> the part of that that is, I mean, I'm a millennial. What does that even mean? Is the hardest joke there, but the one that I really love is I bought you tennis shoes. Yeah, you know that was a little bit of we we were ad libbing that scene back and forth. You know, where we needed the info in it, but Zach and I were going back and forth. And when I I was naming things that I provided for him, I couldn't think of. Uh, the right word, so I just went with what would be authentic maybe to the character and came with tennis shoes. Because, <laughs> you know, that's something, you know, that, you know, that's like, uh, I got you into college, I got you a car. <laughs> what about those socks? Those so- <laughs> and I just thought, you know, there's always a real, you know, like mothers especially have this affinity for beauty things they get their kids. Like, I got you those beautiful socks that time. My mom used to whisper it. I had a friend in elementary school named Evan. Uh, uh, he was still a, still a friend of mine. And Evan, from from literally from preschool into high school, his mom would get him socks for Christmas. And she would go to the Gap and get, when the Gap was 
big on selling like uh, primary colored, you know, basics. She would get him all these different color socks and he would get that for Christmas. And she never understood, she's a wonderful woman, never understood why he wasn't happy to get socks for Christmas. Probably because she had no socks <laughs> growing <laughs> up and always wanted socks. I find that to be our motivation in life almost with everything. Whatever we missed in our childhood, we really try to make up for in our adulthood. What did you feel like you missed in your childhood? Well, I have tons of underwear at home. So I only, I remember we were poor, we were on welfare. And so every, the welfare, and we had 11 children. My dad worked, but we got some help. So, you know, with different things like rent and just small things though. And, um, cause you know, they were reluctant to give anyone help that had any kind of income. It was, it's a funny thing that they do in the welfare department. But so every year they would give you these vouchers cause they didn't trust you with cash. That's how I looked at it. Um, and we would go down to Robert Hall, which was a store in the Midwest that was a men's store. And I would get uh, two pair of pants, two shirts, two pair of underwear, two t-shirts, two, two pair of socks or three, and a pair of shoes, a pair of boots, and a jacket. And that was it. You know, that kind of had to last me. One day, one week, or one day I would wear those pants, and then, you know. And I remember the guy, when I came in, my mom said, I've got some vouchers for him. And his he got on the micro. remember when they'd have a microphone, or a, and he goes, Saul, Saul, I got a husky coming back for you. <laughs> and it was, Jeez. it was... I I was in shock for a second, but <laughs> they're like, was, "Could you please stand I on the husky knew, platform?" I even knew the humor of that then. <laughs> you know, I just wanted to go back and bite him. You know, it was a big dog, and um, I just had that image of me pulling a sled as a husky, and it just made me laugh inside. And then it was, you know, it was humiliating to have that announced on the store, even though nobody probably cared a bit about it. Those are the kind of things. So I think because I couldn't have things, I'm always buying clothes. I go, I think I might be out of shirts. And I've got like 1,100 shirts, you know, that kind of thing. But I cleaned out my storage. I had six big boxes of underwear. So It's I must, a lot of underwear, but it is but, freedom from want. Yeah, it, I think it has to. It is, is freedom from want. But I think I must think I'm always out of underwear because it's a humiliating thing as a kid to only have a couple pair of underwear. You know, to be without is not the worst thing in the world, but, you know, you don't want to be humiliated by it. I think kids are always worried about being humiliated by what they don't have in a situation. Growing up, in the pro we, we would line up in the project lines, which I always thought, this is cruel, you know. And all the kids had the same jacket from the store where the vouchers were. It was, it was I, I got a lot out of that. It, it created who I am, so... How can I not be thankful for it? Well, I mean, I think it's that's a nice thing to say. I mean, I think that's the thing you must come to the conclusion of. Because otherwise, I could be at McDonald's going, do you want a large fry or do you want a medium fry? That could really have happened. Who knows? I mean, not that I wouldn't be unhappy. I, pr I probably would like being at McDonald's. I read somewhere that your conviction 
was that you were going to like be something and make something of yourself, but that your first idea of what that would be would, was that maybe you could become president. Yes, I was convinced. Well, how old are we talking about? I think it just, I think when I realized how much power the president had, because I was powerless in my family with 11 kids and an alcoholic father and a, and a crazy mother, uh, she was the salvation of the whole group. So, you know, I kind of thought, well, that would make my mom proud if I became president. And then, you know, I would be a very good politician. I could get elected, but I would be a terrible administrator because I would just like, no, nah, I wouldn't want to do any of that work. They would bring it in. I go, what? I have to meet with who? I couldn't do it. And so I just tried comedy on a dare. In 1978, a friend dared me. We are at a bar, and these comics were out there, and I go, these guys aren't funny. He goes, you think you're so funny, why don't you try it? I go, I will. And the next week I signed up. For a one-time thing, I never, I was never going to be a comedian. Did you know, like, what, what comedy was? I mean, I, yeah, yeah, I, we because, all know what comedy is, but I mean, yeah. did you know, like, what an act was or, like, what the parts well, I, of stand-up were when you went I thought to, I knew everything. So do you know that complex? You know, because I think I was just an ego driven kid with, uh, you know, probably a maniacal want. And so I, my dad was a musician, very successful musician, very early in his life. But by the time I came along, he was done with all that. And he was a mean alcoholic who was very troubled. He was 50 when you he were born. He was 50 when right? I and, was born. And he had been a trumpeter. Trumpeter with Hoagie Carmichael. And but lost his lip. Lost his lip. That's what he always said. And he had a little uh, mouthpiece he always still practiced on. He played a ukulele and a harmonica when my mom was mad at him to try to butter up to her. So, um, so you know, I would stay up with him and watch The Tonight Show because I was an insomniac as a kid. You know, most comics, I think, are are crazy. And so we're up all night or late at night, and even as kids. And so I would watch The Comedian. And I loved Jack Benny, and I loved uh, Jonathan Winters, and I loved Bob Hope, and I loved Johnny Carson and Jackie Vernon. I can still remember all the comedians I connected with immediately. I connected with all the comedians who had uh, something, something different than the other comedians had. We've got more with Louis Anderson still to come after a break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, we're looking back at the life and work of comedian Louis Anderson. Anderson was a legendary stand-up comic and a great comic actor who performed on shows like Family Feud, Search Party, and Life with Louie. Anderson died last month. He was 68 years old. When I talked with Louis in 2016, he'd just been nominated for an Emmy Award for his part in the FX show, Baskets. Let's get back into our conversation. What about your mother? You have talked about your mother in and your family in your act for decades and decades. And now this part that you play on baskets is a sort of an homage to her. What was she, what, what was she like in, in your family? She was just like a big chicken who kept her chicks safe. That's how I really look at her. 
She, you had ten brothers and sisters. Ten brothers and sisters. And your mother also lost five children in That's childbirth. Right. That's right. That's extraordinary. It's really extraordinary, and I had no idea. You know, but look at my mom. The first baby died. Two sets of twins died, and I think I wonder how many other things had happened. That must have been traumatic, and yet there was a sunshine about her face all the time. You know that we depended on. She had a very big soul purpose to end up surviving whatever situation she was in with uh, with uh, a smile on her face and 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 lipstick on. She wanted to look, you know. She she wanted to be look good. She was she was a you know wonderfully sweet person, but very vain and and um, self centered in in her own way because she grew up a very spoiled child and had a rich father and mother who were very disappointed that my father, you know, got her pregnant and that was it. Did you and your brothers and sisters have ways of getting time and attention from your parents? You know, here's the thing. When you grow up in a family where there's a 20-year span, there's three different families. There's the oldest kids, the middle kids, and the youngest kids. And sometimes the middle kids are part of the youngest kids, and the middle kids are also part of the oldest kids. So there's a couple ties there. But mostly you grow up in three different families. So um, I was the kind of kid who had his head on his hand, and would sit and listen to the adults. That's the kind of kid I was. I always think comics come from a big stew that sits on the stove for a long time. And when it, you know, you just, you're, the right ingredients were in there for the 10th child or whatever it was. Because all my brothers and sisters are talented and funny and sweet and crazy and all like me. But I had the right combination and opportunity or something or drive. I think it could be the drive. Well, I think when you, to become a stand-up comic, it requires that you be talented, but it also requires that you're willing to do this weird, scary thing every day for 10 years right? Uh, before you are successful, five years at the, you know, at the lowest end. I mean, until you know what you're doing, seven years, I always say, seven years to know what you're doing. Yeah. And then uh, I always tell comics, you can't wait long enough to become successful. I go, the longer you wait, and I always tell them, enjoy the ride because you'll, be you'll never be able to be that guy again or that girl. You'll never be able to. You can't, once you have fame and success, you can't have any of those things you used to have. Did you ever get to hang out with your mom? Yeah, because, you know, my dad died in 79. She died in 90. I took care of my mom. So as an adult, but what about as a kid? You know, I have, not, I have very few memories as a, my chi- as a childhood. I blocked out, I think, a lot of stuff. That's surprising to hear for somebody who's been doing uh, material about his family well, for 35 but years. But in the sense of <laughs> I had relationships with all those people. Yeah. So I'm, I'm recreating the relationships. Yeah. But specifics, like when you say that. I see pictures of myself in those social situations, but I don't have that clear recollection that some people do. I want to play a clip from your stand-up from, uh, this is from a special from 1989 called Mom, Louie's Looking at Me Again. 
Um, and you're talking about growing up in Minnesota with your family, especially your folks. And um, you're, you do in this clip an impression of your mom's social moves, her chattiness. Whenever my dad would start working on something, my mom would come around and do that babbling. She'd hover around him. And do that. Well, we all went down to Woolworths, and I was able to find some of that junk jewelry I've been looking for. And then I got that hat for Janet's daughter. And then we went over to the Red Owl, and I got a three-pound roast. No fat on it at all. You wouldn't believe it. Then I found these radishes, as red as a fire engine. You wouldn't believe it. About this big. You know how you like them? You dunk them in the salt, you eat them, you make that crunchy thing. I just love that. And then I was driving the car, and I was going up a hill, and it took, 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 took. I think you're using that cheap. Shut up! No wonder I'm going nuts! And your mom wouldn't shut up. She's really hurt, in fact. She, she'd kind of trail off, you know. <laughs> Shut up. I think the really great thing about that bit is you can sell, see how much that those comics I mentioned uh, affected me. Because right in there you have that fast, Jonathan Winter's babbling, and you have the the longer than you think po pause, you know, which is one of my favorite things to do. Like, the longer I can wait and still keep the attention, that's my goal. And so I, I just felt that. And then you, and then you had the epitome of their relationship, you know, unconditional love and you know, terror. You know, he was, you know, obviously my dad lived in terror, I think, of his of his demons. So you had both those things right there. I assumed immediately when you said terror, you were talking, you were talking about your mother's terror of your father. Well, I think she was stronger than him. Hmm. I mean, he, he drank till he was 69. He quit when he was 69. My mom turned to me and went, I told you he'd quit. <laughs> And I thought that I just I just had the I had the that was all like washed over me. I never I, I just thought I never said much about it, but I just thought, wow, I had no idea she was in the long game like that, but that she had won on some level in her mind. Did he change when he quit drinking? Well, he didn't drink, so that's a change right there because that's an automatic thing. But, you know, he was a dry drunk because he never did any work on himself. He went to one AA meeting, and that was it. Uh, and we went to one Al-Anon meeting, which was really good. We loved it. And then we had to quit because he quit going to the meetings. That's how that works. He was just as selfish in that way. He found a different way to be mean. You know, that's what mean people do. They find a different way to be mean. People who are broken and cruel and hurtful, they will have to repeat that unless they're going to do the steps on it and work it out. Unless you do therapy. I, I mean, I don't think you have much of a chance of getting out of that stuff. I don't think you wake up one day and go, oh, that's it. I'm nice now. So I think you have to work really hard. I did lots of therapy on myself. I know that. You're from Minnesota, and mm. there's this thing called Minnesota Nice. Mm. It is the uh, the watchwords of the entire state of Minnesota. 
Um, and it means a kind of reserved politeness um, and niceness that is sincere, uh, but also can be uh, passive aggressive or um, conflict avoidant to the point to the point of it causing problems, that kind of thing. Um, and I wonder, you know, like your your Midwesternness and your family's Midwesternness, especially your mom, is like so baked into your comedy. Um, and I wonder, like, if you ever think about uh, what you lost from the niceness in your family or in your growing up in addition to what you gained from it. Well, I always said that they're, you know, they're passive aggressive. They're, they'll they'll uh, bandage you up, but they were the ones who cut you in the first place. <laughs> and then they'll rip the bandage off at a certain point and then want to redress it. So there's a, I think it's uh it's insidious, you know, it's that whole thing. You know, I was, Minnesota is such an unusual place. I've been everywhere. And there's a real sense of we will open our arms to you. We will accept you. And then they will not show you the rule book. <laughs> yes. They don't give you the rule book. <laughs> so they, and I don't know if they don't do it because they want to eventually get rid of you or they just want to see if you're worthy of the rules or if you can learn on your own or something. I worked in Minnesota. I mean, I, I worked with a, uh, with a company based in Minnesota and I would travel there, mm -hmm. you know, once a year or whatever, working on a contract, working on partnership stuff, whatever, mm -hmm. right? And I always, I liked everyone there. It was, it was and is a wonderful company. But I, I could, as a Californian, a San Franciscan, I like, I had no idea whether these people hated me or liked me. Mm -hmm. Every single one of them could have gone either way. I could not figure it out. And right. I'm, I mean, I'm a professional interviewer. I'm reasonably empathetic. Yeah. You know what I mean? I can, I have some emotional skills, but I had no clue whether everyone hated me. And, um, and they would never answer it even if you were that direct. They would just go, well, you're just terrific. I just think you're, you know what I like about you? I'm going to tell you eventually. You know, <laughs> they, they don't, they can't pinpoint it. But they don't like that, con they don't want, I don't know, I don't think they do it intentionally or they do it very intentionally. So I don't know if it's just inbred or whatever it is, you know. They're nose. They want information. They're nosy. We're nosy Midwesterners because you're in the house for nine months. You need, you need something to talk about. You know, it's either eating or talking or watching TV. Nine months. You know that those winters. But I, th I mean, I think you're exactly right. I don't think you know where you stand very often. Was there a time when you decided that you were going to have an act that could play on TV in Las Vegas? Um, uh, anywhere, because you you uh started doing comedy in an era when you could have decided to become uh Minnesota's answer to Richard Pryor or um uh or later you know Sam Kinison or whatever. I don't, you know, that's a really great question. There's a side of me that could be a very different comic, 
and I could have been more of a satire. I would I I was very political in the beginning, and I there's but there's also I mean like and there's a meanness in there's all a sharpness my stuff. in yes, your comedy. Yes, so I I'm, wouldn't say meanness, but I would well, say sharpness. sharpness. Okay, like good. Is, yeah, that's a good thing. It's yeah. not mean. You're right. I don't direct it at anyone except myself. I'm the biggest target of my act. So. Yes, I had a choice to go to New York or go to L.A. Rodney and Joan Rivers and Henny Youngman all said, you got to get out of here. I said, no kidding. Um, and so I didn't want to go to the East Coast because I didn't want to be around snow anymore. And then I was so happy when I hit the 101 and there were palm trees. I called people. I pulled over and got to a phone. And I said, There's palm trees on the 101. There's palm trees on the freeway in California. I was like, I'm home. I felt home. I, I don't know why. I just go, well, this is where I want to be. It had a Jack Gleason feel to it, you know, the whole Palm Beach thing. I go, this is how I should live. This is I, I was made to be here. This is familiar to me for some reason. And um, so, but to answer your question more specifically, I always wanted to do a show that you could bring your whole family to because my goal has always been to fix a family. So that's why I kept it clean. Plus, I knew I could make more money. That's why I opened for, you can't name, you can hardly name one person I didn't open for in Vegas because I had a clean 20 minutes. And when we're talking about people that you opened for in Vegas, I mean, we're talking about like uh, the Commodores or whatever, mm -hmm. um, and not uh, just. Ray Charles. Yeah. Glenn Campbell, God rest his soul. What a sweet guy. What a great singer. One of the greatest guitar and players and singers we ever had. Forget country. He just was. He was a, a virtuoso. And, you know, Smokey Robinson and the Pointer Sister. You know, Natalie Cole. I mean, I, Kenny Rogers, Dolly Parton. These are all people I opened for. And I love that job because it was 20 minutes and I was done. And so I knew I couldn't offend any of those people there. But also, I... I think it fits me better. I don't think F you fits my act like it does other people's. Even in my, people are, will whip their head around if I say something like that, not on stage, but even in talking to them. Because, you know, we were, my dad had a dirty mouth and a, my, my mom never swore though. I think she might've once, maybe. She said cat piss once that made us laugh. So you decided, you, you sort of made it a choice at some point. Do you ever get... I don't, you know what? Do you ever... I think of... Well, go ahead. Do you ever get that? I know a lot of comics who enjoy the part of their act that is the weirdest mm -hmm. that they can put over that works. Like part of the challenge, part of the joy of being a stand-up comic to them, you know, they... The main problem is you solve how do I get come up with a thing that the audience enjoys. But then the bonus problem is what's the what's the least likely or weirdest thing that I can come up with that I can get the audience to enjoy. I agree with you. I mean, I think there is a part of all of us. And um I think that, you know, where where I'm coming from or even that part of it, I used to get a little darker. I go, you know, I just read an article. This was a joke I did a long time ago. I just read an article where a guy killed his whole family today. You know, people go, I can't believe that happened. And I go, I can't believe it doesn't happen more often. And that 
would sit on my audience with a, uh, but that is really, that's the essence of who I could be right there. <laughs> you got to tell the tag on that joke because the tag on that joke is a home run. That, the, the... I don't think it starts out where you're going to kill everyone, but the rush of the first one must just carry you through to the dog. <laughs> You know, and I'm trying to tell the perfect joke. That's really what the difference right. is between me and maybe those other people. I'm trying to get the best possible performance out of a joke. Honest to God. I want a joke that's so good that you, that it's like a piece of, you know, beautiful, whatever you like to eat, like butter in your mouth or, you know, a piece of steak that you just think about from the place that you love your favorite steak. I want you to savor what I have to say. And I want you to lay in bed next to somebody you love or you hate. I don't care. And I want you to mutter that before you go to sleep. That's my favorite thing. I want you to mutter that. I want it to get in your subconscious and I want it to be there. And I do all this without knowing that. I didn't plan it. It just, it, it's become, you know, like that's my, my goal is to leave a little of me behind after every show. When you agreed to take this part on baskets, um, and when you started to think about it as, in a lot of ways, an homage to your mom, um, and especially because you chose to play it as a realistic character. It's not a drag performance or a camp performance in any way. Did you feel a burden of representing your mom? Or was that something that you had dealt with long before when you decided to do jokes about your family on stage? I felt like a burden to represent myself as a great actor. Mm -hmm. And I used Richard Pryor as an example. I said, when I do this part, a few things. I said, you're not going to complain ever on this set. And you're not going to say no to anything they want you to do. And you're going to cut yourself wide open when you get there every morning. You're going to lay it all out there. You're not, you're not holding anything back. Was that scary to do? <laughs> Isn't it? Every day? Isn't that what we should be doing? Laying it all on the line? instead of constantly backing off the, the, the interaction of the real truth. But, you know, my thing is, is if I could get the relationship with the audience to the point where I could say, look at this, this is the most painful part of me, and yet I can laugh at it, and so can you, and you can laugh at your most painful part because you can heal it then. I want to play another clip from Baskets, um, and uh, my guest, Louis Anderson, who plays Christine, Zach Galifianakis, the uh, title character's mother. And in season two of the show, which is the last show, by the way, Louis nominated for a, another Emmy Award for his performance. Um, she is thinking about being romantic for the first time in a long time. And she's talking with Martha, who is uh, uh, her friend and, and Zach's characters, about a um, new flame. 
Did you get lamb chow? I don't want her peeing there. That dog pees everywhere. I've seen it. You know, I don't think she has to pee. I think she just misses her Mima, probably. Yeah, okay. How are you doing? I'm good. I keep myself busy. You know, we've got, you know, people coming over to pay their respects, and that's always a nice thing. And, yeah. <sighs> you know, I, uh, remember that guy? Yeah? I went to see him. Oh, that's great, Mrs. Denver. Baskets. And you were right. There was a sexual vibe. Did I say that? You did, and I had a terrific time, Martha. That city is, you know, so high, so technically, I guess, you know, I'm part of the Mile High Club. <laughs> well, that's great. <laughs> I love that scene. You know what, I th that scene was a really important scene, all of that stuff there. Because Christine, you know, hadn't probably hugged anyone for, what, 25 years or more? That's how I figured it. I don't think anybody paid any attention to her, and she was taking care of the kids, and maybe because she got so fat, she didn't think she was desirable. And then here's this guy who has a like-minded situation with his child, and yet he's so kind and loving to her, She has she's perplexed. Is this... When he hugged me, hugged Christine at at the end of the Reagan Library thing, I worked a long time on the expression that I would have inside for that hug. And I, I got it. 25 years of not being hugged. I thought of my mom. Because from 1979 till 90, I don't think my mom got hugged again from the opposite sex. Well, if she like did. romantically. If she did, she wasn't telling us. I hope she did. I hope she, I hope she did. Cause she, she was a sweet person, but she, you know, she was, she, she made people instinctively feel better. She knew how to make people feel. I learned that from her. She goes, you, you know, you should be nice to everybody, Louie. And I go, why? She goes, because you don't know what kind of day they had. So what? What about what kind of day I had? You know, when you're a dumb teenager. We'll wrap up with Louie Anderson in just a bit. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hi, I'm Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. And I'm Jordan Morris, boy detective. Our comedy podcast, Jordan Jesse Go, just celebrated its 15th anniversary. It was a couple months ago, but we forgot. Uh, yeah, completely. Our, our silly show is 15 years old. That makes it old enough to get its learner's permit. And almost old enough to get the talk. Wow, I hope you got the talk before then. A lot of things have changed in 15 years. Our show's not one of them. We're never changing and you can't make us. Jordan, Jesse, go the same forever at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Somewhere between science and superstition, there is a podcast. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. That thing is not my daughter. 
And I want you to tell me there's a show where the hosts don't just report on French science and spirituality, but take part themselves. Well, there is, and it's Ono, Ross, and Carrie on Maximum Fun. This year, we actually became certified exorcists. So yes, Carrie and I can help your daughter. (laughs) Or we can just talk about it on the show. Ono, Ross, and Carrie on MaximumFun.org. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to Bullseye. We're replaying my 2017 conversation with the late Louis Anderson. Are you comfortable looking at yourself on screen? Sometimes. I got really fat the first year. I was really fat. The second year I tried to lose some weight because Jonathan thought it would be better physically for me. He was just real straightforward with me about it. Uh... And then the third year now, I did take control of and have become, I'm a healthy, I'm eating very healthy and I'm a really healthy person right now. The most healthy person I've ever been. I don't smoke, I don't, well, I drink, I would drink a glass of champagne if you had really good champagne, but um, (laughs) that's about my limit there. But I don't, uh, I'm serious about living as long as possible. Why is that? Oh, this is hard because I've lost my brother a couple of years ago. <laughs> my baby brother Tommy. And uh he was sixty and I couldn't save him. So I thought maybe I'll save myself. <laughs> He was bipolar, right? Yeah, he was everything, but he was—he had really worked a lot of that out. I mean, occasionally he would throw a plate of food against the wall, but who doesn't? <laughs> I mean, he was a lovely person. He was my baby brother. <sighs> That's a really... That's um... a hard one for me still, every day. Because we grew up like this. We were very close. Very close. We had endured the same stuff all through. You know, I've lost seven siblings. Very hard. Very, very hard. I learned all my stuff and all that loss. I learned a lot of stuff. And uh, I cherish every moment with who's left in my family. It can be hard to feel responsible and want to care for someone who you love in your family. Yeah. Um, I mean, in general, but uh, with uh, bipolar particularly, because it's... um, well, we are never taught to care for each other. We were taught to survive. We weren't taught to care for each other. That took a lot. We all had to learn that on our own. Even though my mom was so caring, you know, it's like it's like a hug while people are shooting at you. It must be how the people in Syria feel. You know, you want to take care of your kids, but yet you just you know they're trying to kill all of you. 
This is very similar. It's not as drastic as it, 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 the alcoholic family. It's not as drastic, but it doesn't feel any less drastic when you're in it. I mean, I think there's an element of survival in being one of 11 children in almost any situation. Yeah, I mean, you know that you know that people will ask me, what was it like growing up in a big family? I have no idea. I didn't grow up in a little family. I only know how, grow, how it was growing up in my family. And there were really wonderful things in my family. Look at who I became. I couldn't have become a, this good a person if there wasn't that much good in my family. I notice you're wearing a wedding ring. Are you married? I am not married, no. This is a gift from somebody who loves me a lot. And it fits on that finger. That's the real truth. You know, when something fits on a finger, you wear it on that <laughs> finger. It's true. My other, I have my Tommy rings. I didn't bring them today, but I have two rings that Tommy gave me. And they fit on it. But yeah, no. No, I'm not married. You have an incredible... To be a great comedian, and especially the kind of great comedian who is able to perform for any kind of audience, the kind of comedian who can open for the Pointer Sisters and do The Tonight Show and uh, open for Leonard Skinner or whatever and kill in all of those places, you have to have an extraordinary sense of what the audience will go for, basically, like what what will work for them. And I wonder if you're ever if you've ever if you ever feel constrained by that. Um, there's all right. You mean like? Well, go ahead. Give me a because I, I I'm not sure your question. I'm is. sure there are versions of you uh, that would be great that don't work for everybody, right? Yeah. No. I I only listen. I I agree with you. And I no longer am that comedian. Mm -hmm. I'm not out to please everybody anymore. You know, I I wish if I were to do it all over again, I'd be less popular and much more uh, artistic. I think you're very artistic in your work, so I hope you wouldn't. No, but I, I mean, don't feel otherwise. But I think I'd be much more controversial. Maybe that because I would be tell. I mean, I would have a much harsher truth to to all the characters you know like you know i softened everything i made my dad a human being in my cartoon i took who my dad was and i softened him up but you still knew he was dangerous at any moment in the cartoon even then and that's what i was going for and that's who i am on stage i can i'm there i'm very friendly but i'm not, i'm a very dangerous person well, Louis, given how dangerous you are, I think I better get out of here. <laughs> but you know what I mean by that dangerous. I thing. do. Don't yeah. worry. I no, I'm not. I'm not worried. You know, that's the greatest thing. At a certain point in your life, when you get older, why worry? I always tell people, you know, worry will not extend your life one second. Stay in the present if you can. It's the hardest thing to do. Or send me presents. I love that. Well, Louis, I'm so grateful for you to to you for um, coming here and talking to me. Thank you so much for being on Bullseye. Thank you, Jesse. Louis Anderson from 2017. If you haven't seen Baskets, he is absolutely extraordinary in it. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fund in and around Greater Los Angeles, California. Here at my house, we've just been watching this. <laughs> English antiquing reality show called Antiques Road Trip all the time. 
really into it. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producer is Jesus Ambrosio. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It's by the group The Go Team. Thanks to them and thanks to Memphis Industries Records for letting us use that. You can also keep up with our show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post our interviews in all those places. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.